Welcome to From Startup to Growing Up, the podcast. My name is Alyssa Cohn. I'm an executive coach, an angel investor, and the author of From Startup to Grown Up. Each week, I talk to founders, creators, advisors, investors, and builders of all kinds about their insights and experiences in going from startup to grown up. Welcome back to From Startup to Grown Up, where I interview founders, builders, and leaders to talk about their personal growth journeys to grow into great leaders. My guest today is Joe Landolina, co-founder and CEO of Cresolent, which makes products which stop traumatic bleeding in seconds. Joe started the company when he was 17 years old after inventing the gel technology that's at the heart of their products. Now, as you can imagine, Joe was not such a normal kid. He learned by doing it in his grandfather's lab. And you'll hear the massive blooper that happened that made him realize, as Joe says, that chemistry is nothing to be trifled with. We talked about how Joe got his initial funding after posting online a 20-second video of how his product stopped bleeding instantly, and also how as a freshman he ran his company from his dorm room at NYU until they finally went out and got space. We discussed Joe's framework to vet investors and how he built relationships with investors, along with a key question he asks investors to make sure they're the right fit. Joe and I talked about the Cresselin employee and how he and the team iterated to articulate what that meant and how they find the right people. We also talked about a cautionary tale of how Joe hired the wrong people in early days, not unusual in the startup world. Joe and I also talked about how he learned management skills and his theory of the pendulum of management. Cresslin's 13-year journey has been very successful, but of course there have been some downs. And Joe talked about how he handled some of the issues that they had and how he handles his own mental health. Joe is so articulate and has such hard-won wisdom. You're going to love this discussion. So please enjoy my conversation with Joe Landolina, co-founder and CEO of Cresselin. Joe, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you here today. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm so excited to be here. I'm thrilled. And, you know, I want to start, I like to start with the founding insight. So can you tell me the founding insight of Cresselon? Sure. Uh, so it, Cresselon started about 13 years ago. I was 17 years old and I was working out of my grandfather's chemistry lab. And I, I found this blend of two polymers, effectively long chains of sugar that came out of algae that would stick to skin and it wouldn't let go until you wanted it to. And so we had this idea to take that resulting material and use it to stop bleeding. And what we have today and what we've developed is a product that can stop any bleed nearly instantly without the need to apply pressure from massive gunshot wounds to things like neurosurgical bleeds and everything in between. That's amazing. And I love how you say you were working out of your grandfather's chemistry lab, like as one does when you were 17. I mean, I guess I would say that from what I know about you, you were not a normal kid. And if I'm not mistaken, you experimented with something and put your cousin into a coma. Is that what happened? So I, I got really into plant-based chemistry. So because as, as you can imagine, I, I had a, a very unorthodox childhood. And uh, my, my grandfather was an ex-pharmaceutical executive who in retirement decided to start a vineyard. And so I grew up with a chemistry lab across the street from my house and a grandfather in lab safety in the 60s. And so his theory was you learn by doing. And, uh, and nowadays it, it's not terribly advisable to, to go into a, a lab and learn by just mixing things together. But effectively from the time that I could walk. I had a crash course in chemistry and my parents uh, did not necessarily share that same philosophy with my grandfather. 
Uh, and so every time I would do something that I shouldn't have, my, my world got smaller and smaller and smaller until my parents assumed that anything that I could find in nature would likely be safe. And so I, uh, at the time, went to the library and, and got a bunch of books in Eastern medicine and, uh, and learned herbs and other things that you could put together. And I, I uh, ended up making uh, something that, that, that put, my, uh, put my cousin into a very deep sleep. And I, I, I'm not sure if I, if I would say coma, uh, but I learned very quickly that, that uh, lab research and, and chemistry is nothing to be trifled with. Uh, but so, so yes, you're correct in saying I had a very unorthodox childhood. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I mean, I guess I'm curious, like, did you experience yourself as kind of a, an unusual kid? I mean, even saying, like, I went to the library and I looked up all these books, you know, just not something that typical teenagers are, are doing, like... Was there something, a, a drive in you that like insatiable curiosity? Did you experience something different about yourself? So I, I was always very curious as a kid. And I, I was very lucky that I, and my parents were relatively young when they had me. And what that meant is that uh, weekdays, for the most part, I would spend uh, with my mom's parents who, who owned the vineyard. And weekends, I, I would spend with my dad's parents um, who... Uh, my my grandfather was a retired stockbroker, uh, and my my grandmother uh, wa- worked in administration for SUNY New Paltz. And so, uh, what my grandmother would do is, if I if I had an interest, she would set me up a lunch with a professor on a Saturday, and I can go in and ask any questions that I wanted from the time that I was a really young age. So I had grandparents that, as the first grandson or grandkid in the family, I had the very good fortune of being able to uh, have all of the attention of four grandparents and and four loving and two loving parents all at once focused on me. And so anything that I had an interest in, I was able to get. And there was a while there where my allowance was even paid in books at Barnes and Noble. And and so (laughs) I I was uh, able to get my hands on on just about anything uh, that, that I wanted to learn about and, and the ability to start to explore. And, and that uh, gave me a, an awesome foundation for doing uh, what we do today. Yeah, I can imagine. You know, you, like you said, um, it's sort of, like you said, you, you know, used to be learned by doing and the sort of culture isn't so much into that right now. Like when you, you just got married, congratulations, Thank you. Mazel Tov on your wedding. And maybe you'll have kids in the future. And theoretically, if you mm-hmm. did have kids in the future, have you thought about how you would raise your kids so that they were able to have access to these kinds of things that you were able to, which were so outside of normal school? So my, my wife, Courtney, and I talk about that all the time. And it's something that we, we definitely want to replicate as, as closely as we can. And perhaps maybe in a bit safer of a way than uh, that, that I experienced it myself. Uh, but there, there's something to be said about uh, having exposure or having information at your fingertips, and and I think that the difference is when I was growing up, and I, I'm I, I'm not terribly old, uh, but I was at the point where the internet was more for information transfer, where, where you couldn't you couldn't actually look anything up, right? If, if I needed information, it was from the encyclopedia set I had at home, um, and if it wasn't there, you went to a library, and if it wasn't there, then you had to go talk to a professor to to find it, uh, at least in, in the way that I would experience it. So I couldn't Google the answers uh, to to the questions that I had, and and, and nowadays I, I think that it's both a great thing and uh, and and maybe something negative in that there's no longer that journey uh, where everything fits into the palm of your hand and, and the answer to every question or most questions at least is just a search away, uh, and I, I think that 
trying to replicate that journey for my kids uh, is something that we're really interested in because it's you really learn not in the result of a search, but you learn in having to figure out who to get the information from. And I think that that was the most important developmental piece for me. And, and, uh, and so, uh, yes, it's something we think about a lot. Do I have all the answers there? Not, not at all. Uh, right. But, but we'll try our hardest. Yeah. We still have time. Thank goodness. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so you had this discovery when you were 17. Walk me through how that turned into a company. Sure. And so I, um, when I was 17, I was an incoming freshman into NYU. And at the time, and so my, my parents and neither of my parents finished college. And so, uh, they, they gave me very, uh, simple, uh, career instructions, uh, which was, uh, you're intelligent. So you can choose from this list of careers, which is, which was doctor, lawyer, accountant, and, and so on. <laughs> and, and, and I, I picked doctor. And, and so uh, I entered NYU and I, I wanted to become a surgeon. I really enjoyed working with my hands. And, uh, and But on the way there, I loved the field of engineering. And so I got into a, a combined bachelor's and master's program in chemical engineering at NYU, which was a four-year program. And, uh, and I getting into that program, I was really interested in trying to get as much onto my resume as possible to set me apart from other medical school applicants. And so the very first week of school, there was an advertisement for NYU's business plan competition, uh, which had a $75,000 top prize at the time. And I thought, you know, there's no way that we'll win this, uh, but I have this idea that uh, that I'd been thinking about. And uh, if I got into the quarterfinals, they gave you free business classes. And I, I thought that as an engineer, that would make me a better rounded candidate and I could use that to get an internship and I could use that internship to get into medical school and, and so on. And so I met my co-founder, Isaac, who was at the time a junior at the business school at NYU. And we entered the competition. We ended up winning at the engineering school. We took second place at the business school. And, and that gave us enough recognition, enough capital to start prototyping and moving the business forward. And then over the last 13 years, it's gone from what was effectively an idea in a dorm room uh, to now what is... 33,000 square feet uh, of production, a highly verticalized biotech company uh, with sales across three continents. Amazing. That's incredible. But how did you, so you won the business school competition or the, the different competitions, and then you got some capital and you prototyped the product. But was there a moment where, like I'm picturing kind of the early moments of we formed the company, we made our first hires, we you know had our first space. How, how did that all come into fruition? Was it just organic and sort of obvious to you? So it was organic. I, I tend to be a pessimist, uh, which oh. is the, so in the beginning, it was always, this isn't real yet. Um, but when we do X, it will become real. And then X comes and goes, and it still doesn't feel real. So, so the goalposts move out. And so it really, I mean, took me until the first time that our product was used in a patient to be able to say, okay, this is we're finally where we need to be. And that, that was about a 10 year process end to end. Uh, 10 years, 10 years 10 of years. thinking this is not real yet. Or, or at least we haven't quite made it. And uh, it, it, because with something that's as regulated as biotech, it, it's, it's a very long cycle before you can actually show that there's product market fit. And, and uh, for us, the great thing about treating bleeding is that you can see the effects immediately. You don't have to wait around for the patient to recover. The, the patient is either bleeding or they're not. And if you 
you can see it happen before your eyes. And, and that that's such a powerful feeling because there's one thing to do it in a research setting, but it's another thing to actually put this in the hands of a surgeon and watch them save a patient's life with something that, that took 10 years to, to get to that point, uh, to, to be. Yeah, and so, totally. uh, I, but I, I, the question was, what did the early stages of the company look like? And, and it was, uh, it was interesting because I, I didn't drop out of school, right? So I, I finished my degree. So I started this as a freshman uh, and I progressively became worse and worse of a student uh, the <laughs> entire time that this grew. Uh, yeah. But for the first three or four years of the company, we were dorm room based entirely. Uh, so for the first two years, th this was being run out of a dorm room. Uh, and then uh, we were using my grandfather's lab uh, at, at the winery to, to do basic research and things like that and commuting up and down from there. Um, and then we were borrowing lab space uh, from people that, that we could uh, you know, beg, borrow, and steal from uh, in, in that way. And then uh, my co-founder, Isaac, and I decided um, in 2012, we were going to get an apartment together. And so we got an apartment with a big living room, and that became our office. And the kitchen in that apartment became a very simple laboratory. And, <laughs> wow. uh, and then from there, we realized that if we wanted to move forward, we probably had to do this the right way. And, and so... Uh, the the space that I'm talking uh, from right now is an old 1930s schoolhouse that's in Park Slope, Brooklyn, and we found this on Craigslist. Uh, we took it over at the time. We wanted it to just be a lab, uh, and, uh, and and the week after I signed the lease here, uh, we realized that we couldn't outsource the manufacturing of our material, which is what 99% of biotechs do, and it was either shut down the business or become a manufacturer ourselves. And, and we're not one for, uh, for just turning the lights off uh, when, when we're faced with a problem. And we decided, you know what, we'll become a manufacturer. And then at that, we'll become the only manufacturer in the five boroughs in New York. And so I remember it was Christmas Eve of 2013. And I, I called up the only company that was still open. There was a company in LA that was selling clean rooms. And I, I bought two clean rooms. And, uh, and three months later, when they arrived, we became a manufacturer. And so uh, it, it's been, uh, well, it's been a journey of, of I, learning quite a bit of things all, all along the way. Uh, but yeah, it, it started, I mean, in fact, one of the employees from that dorm room, it, it just celebrated his 11th anniversary of working with, uh, of working with Cresselon. And so we have uh, a, a bunch of, uh, a bunch of people old and new uh, that, that have come together uh, to, to join the team to, to drive success here. That's incredible. So once again, learn by doing, right? So like, oh, we need to do this. We need to do this. But where did you get the money to, I mean, you went to Craigslist and you found a listing, but where did you get the money to have that listing? And were you already incorporated at that point? So we, so we formally incorporated in 2012. And, uh, and so that was about two years after founding or a year and a half after founding, uh, roughly. And then, um, uh, we were, we got really lucky. And so I, um, when I was still in the dorm room, uh, we decided that I just wanted to run a, a, an experiment. And so we uh, went down the street in Brooklyn to this local butcher shop. And I was asking him when the next time that uh, he would have fr fresh blood. He told us to show up on a certain day. And we ended up, we got some fresh blood. We got fresh meat uh, from there. And I said a very simple experiment, uh, which is we had an aquarium pump. Uh, and we pumped this blood through this piece of meat. And we put the uh we put our product onto it uh and it stopped it instantly 
And, and if you look at it, it's this old video that was filmed, I think, on an iPhone 3 or an iPhone 4, whatever it was out at that time. Uh, and I just I posted it on my personal Facebook. And I, I had someone reach out to me and at the time. Tumblr was uh, was massive. And uh, this guy from NYU said, listen, I, I have a Tumblr. Not many people read it. Uh, but do you mind if I if I post this as a GIF on uh, on that? And it went viral overnight. And so we went from being relatively unknown to being on talk shows. Uh, and <laughs> uh, it just, uh, we had over 8,000 investors reach out to us to try to invest in the business. And so much so that we had to hire a full-time employee just to vet investors coming in. And that's every entrepreneur's dream. And, and perhaps that that's not a situation that can be replicated nowadays. And we were uh, both had something that, could be distilled into a 20 second GIF with no audio, no text. It was just a bleed that was bleeding. It looked very severe and we can stop it. And it was so eye grabbing uh, that it just blew up. And so mm -hmm. that one video uh, ended up having over 140 million impressions on it by, by the end of, uh, by the end of that run. Uh, and we were able to put together a group of investors and that same group of investors that came in, in, between 2013 and 2015, uh, as we raised our first round, I reinvested uh, all the way uh, through about six priced rounds of, of funding uh, to just shy of $100 million in funding over the lifespan of, of, of the company to the point now where we're commercial and, and likely will not need to raise additional capital. And so uh, it, we got very lucky in the beginning, not only to have such an amount of interest, but to be able to harness it and vet it properly uh, to find investors that would be supporters of our business. And, and so the, the vast majority of our investors uh, have reinvested more than once into the, into the business across almost every round that, that we've raised. And, and that's been uh, paramount to this because biotech is uh, it, it's a waiting game in a lot of ways. And so you need investors that understand that there will be trials and tribulations and, and that have the patience and the belief in the technology to allow us to do what we need to do. Definitely. Wow, that is quite a story. And I understand like kind of like a good problem to have and, and something that other entrepreneurs don't tend to face. But nonetheless, you had eight thousand you said eight thousand people express interest. Is that what you said? Exactly. Eight thousand investors. That's a lot of investors. And so how did you vet them? I understand you hired someone, but what were the criteria that you used to vet them? And how did you create a framework where you could even at, at scale, frankly, go through those let list of investors? So, so that, that is probably a, enough information for a conversation on its own. Uh, but really what we were looking for is culture fit. Uh, it's the same way that we look for, that we look for employees. And, and we, we have a framework that we call the Cresselon employee, right? And, and someone that fits this type of environment. And what we were looking for is an investor uh, that has a track record of investing in companies that are like ours, uh, that is not looking for a quick win, uh, but someone who understands uh, that they're they're buying into it because they're bought into the mission uh, of the business and and they want to see the business grow over time. And and so uh, and especially off of something like a video that's posted on Facebook that, that's gone viral, you you get a wide range of uh of people to come in and want to and want to invest in the business and so we were lucky that you can and we the cream of the crop flows to the top fairly quickly uh through that process so it, it wasn't like we were uh, running multiple rounds of vetting interviews uh, but we we insisted on at least in that first round uh, every single investor that came in 
had an extensive conversation with either Isaac or myself, if not both of us, and just to make sure that they were comfortable with us, that they trusted us, and, and that we trusted them, and we were comfortable with them. And, and, and that builds a relationship, because inevitably, when things change, and when things don't go to plan, uh, that means that we can have a conversation about it, right? There, there's a face behind behind the name or behind the email, and, and we can get on the phone and, and we can work out a solution that, that, that's amicable as opposed to having it be purely a business relationship. Right. Very powerful. It sounds like actually, first and foremost, you just wanted to start establishing the relationship with them so that you could put a name to the face and already have that dialogue going, which is kind of one of the first tenets really of building trust and rapport, which you ultimately will need in times of trouble. But I'm curious, like, what are the other, can you remember one or two questions you asked or what you were looking for when you were vetting them? Certainly someone, sounds like someone who had experience in the space, but it sounds like you also wanted someone who would be with you for the ups and downs and had patience. How did you, and are there other qualities you were vetting for and how specifically did you vet for that? So, so admittedly, this was, uh, we ran this process exactly a decade ago. And, and so it's been a little while since <laughs> That's I, right. You may not I, quite remember. Since, since I've asked these questions. And admittedly, I, I was I was also a decade younger at the time. So I'm not sure if those questions were that profound. Uh, really from from my perspective, it was just having a conversation with them. And you can get a you can get a really good feel, in my opinion, for like off of the first five minutes or so of having a conversation as to whether or not they really truly get what it is that you're doing, or whether or not it's uh they're looking at the dollars and cents only um, and, and not the mission, right? And, and I think that, right, you know, we would ask questions that poke at what their personal connection is to the mission, right? Because mm -hmm. obviously the great thing about stopping bleeding is that everybody can relate to that in some way. Uh, but what we found and and the the general archetype of the investor that came in during this period of time of the business uh, are other individuals that had very deep-seated interest or, in the mission itself, right? And really love the intersection of biotech and biomaterials and, or, or had a connection to New York and wanted it to be built here. Uh, but we also had a number of potential end users. Uh, so uh, retired veterans, uh, there were surgeons and veterinarians and dental surgeons and, and, and individuals that would come to us and say, listen, I want to invest in this business because it will change the way that I do medicine. It will change the way that I can impact patient lives. And, and so uh, that was most powerful to me because even today, uh, when my team has a, uh, has a question, the first person we call or the first group of people we call are our own investors that are currently in medical practice. Uh, and, and we can vet them out. We can bring them into New York. We can let them play with the product because there's, again, there, there's no one else that will be brutally honest with you as someone that has their own money on the line for the success, right? They're not going to want something out in the market uh, that uh, is not going to do justice uh, to, to the mission uh, that we're all fighting uh, for together. And so uh, it allowed us to build a really nice, diverse group of, of investors uh, at the angel level uh, that really uh, understands what it is that we do and can help the business in an additive way. Or usually when you're looking at, at angel investment, you're just You'd be lucky to find angel investors that are willing to write the size of check uh, that you need to have in the business. And we were able to do both find investors that are not only willing to write the check, but are able to write follow-on checks at progressively larger sizes and have those investors be value additive to the business in some way. 
Yeah. And, and so whether those investors are opening up foreign markets for us and, and giving us advice as we're as we're looking at expanding into Asia or into Europe, uh, whether those uh, investors are saying, you know, as an example, we're uh, exploring spinal surgery um, as, as an indication today, and, and we have a, a number of, of investors that are spinal surgeons, uh, and, and they're the first ones that get to play with this product. And then we bring them into our labs, and they, they give us feedback, and, and they are brutally honest, uh, because right. they um, have no reason not to be. Totally. And also to your point earlier, because you already know them and they know you and you've already had a relationship for a while. So there's a comfort level there about being brutally honest, right? Exactly. Yeah, that's amazing. Now, something you also talked about was the Cresselin employee. Okay, so tell me about that. Tell me about how you established that. Was that trial and error? Was that like a thing you started day one? Was that something that came later? Like, how does that show up? And then how does that affect culture? So, so what's interesting is that actually, so we just did a, a leadership team offsite earlier this year, and and this exact point was the subject of uh, of extensive debate, and uh, and and because it's very hard, there, there's a there's a je ne sais quoi about it, and uh, and, and so in the very beginning, it was a uh, it it was one of those you, you like when you see it, you know, type of effects where you could just because especially. You know, we were hiring employees at, or uh, or people, teammates out of our university, right? And right. so uh, there were there was the type of person uh, that was a go getter uh, that could see a wide range of data uh, and pull the relevant conclusion there without getting stuck in the books, right? And, and without getting stuck in the theory. Uh, that became the archetype for the Crestlon employee, uh, where you could just tell that as you're working, as you're as you're interacting with people, right? When you find someone that meets that mold, right? You would say, well, this person fits that mold, right? And then they became the the earlier employees of the team, right? And so, you know, we uh, over the years have tried to encapsulate that in values, and and uh, and in fact, we're in the process right now of distilling the values because we, we've had. Uh, for about five years now, we've had a set of ten values uh, that that we use uh, to to measure employees, and I, I don't like having ten values because it becomes really hard to distill and to measure against ten different factors. And so we're uh, reducing that down to to four attributes of of, of the employee, and, and that that's getting rolled out to our organization at, at the end of this month. Uh, but all of that is in trying to actually figure out. Uh, how we can put into words uh, what we mean by uh, the the Cresselon employee, and, yeah. and so, uh, and, and beyond that, uh, I think that you know one of the challenges that you face, especially in a highly regulated startup, is that uh, you know in the early years you get the you get the founding team plus, like the the first five employees, the first ten employees that come through the door. Uh, and in that case, it's pretty easy, uh, especially when nobody has experience necessarily, right? To put a team together where you're effectively building a team based solely on soft skills. And, and then there comes a point in biotech where you realize that soft skills isn't going to save a patient's life. <laughs> totally. Alone, right? right. <laughs> exactly. Right. right? And, and so, uh, so you need to start bringing in hard skills. And, and so I, I call that phase of company building logo hunting. And so especially in, uh, in this phase, but it's not just a biotech problem, right? But you realize you've raised a seed round, you need to go out for an A or for a B, 
Uh, and that means that now you need talent that's come in from other companies that you poach. Uh, and you're looking for someone to say, well, this person ran this division at J&J for 25 years. And if they can run that, then this should give you the the confidence to, to invest a larger sum into our, into our business. And, and so what you end up doing is you shift the culture really significantly. And we, we spoke a little bit about this uh, on the on that quick clip uh, that, that we had a few weeks ago. Uh, but uh, the, the point there is that you end up shaking up the culture a lot. And and so it's necessary because you need to start bringing in outside employees, employees from other organizations, but you get this change. And and then at some point, once you've hit those initial milestones, you're done logo hunting, right? You've mm. built enough of an ethos within the company uh, to mean that you no longer need to validate the business based on the logos that people are bringing in, right? That there's you have to focus on hiring only for the blend of hard skills and soft skills. And so in the long approval timeline of biotech, those things get stretched out, right? So these aren't happening over months. This is happening over the period of years, right? Where our logo hunting campaign was five years long, give or Mm. take, to to build that skill set. And so now what we're doing is we're in the next phase of that, uh, which is really looking to tighten up uh, what those cultural aspects are and make sure that uh, we're not, we're hiring always at all levels of the organization. So I mean, today we have about 75 employees, uh, which uh, is very lean for, for a business uh, that, that's that's doing what we're doing, but still it's not small. It's uh, You have lots and lots of teams that, that have differences and, and cultural differences among those teams, among multiple locations. And so trying to harmonize the culture is something that's front of mind because it's necessary. Totally. It's necessary. And you still have employees who you hired, you know, 11 years ago, and then you probably have employees that you hired one year ago or two years ago. And that's a very different profile, right? To your point about logo hunting versus go-getter. Like I'm kind of picturing generation one, go-getter, generation two, logo hunting, maybe generation three is maybe harmonizers, right? To use your word or something like that. And so how have you thought about maybe codifying the culture and harmonizing? Like if you were going to give advice to someone right now to say, if you were at the stage that we were at and you were really looking to harmonize all that and also create a template for the Crescent employee that you want to bring in, what specific advice would you have? So what it is, is you have to, you have to lead with your values, and uh, and then what we do is we use our values as a rubric in all interviews. And so what we first things first, uh, we have the values rated in every single interview. So no matter who's oh, wow. interviewing, no matter what the position is, whether you're an intern or your C-suite, right. you have a rating of the values for, from every interviewer. Right. And, uh, and, and so Joe, it, I just want to, I'll interrupt you for one second because give us some examples. And I know you're changing your values and shortening them, but like just give us some examples of some current day values that you're rating that you're looking for. Sure. Uh, so ingenuity uh, is, is a value, right? Courage is, is a value. Agility is, is, is a value, right? And so these are not necessarily one for one things. And that's why finding exact understanding, like finding, examples of these and training your interviewers properly on what the example is and and what does courage mean right what does ingenuity mean and give some examples there uh, through all of that uh it's really important and and yeah. it may it, it takes up a lot of time it's especially the leadership team's time uh, totally to do it, but, but it but it's paramount um in, in making sure that every hire that comes in is what you need them to do because especially in biotech you find this 
right? as the organization starts to balloon, balloon out, middle-level managers have a tendency to say, I have a need to perform task A. So I'm going to hire someone who's an expert in doing only task A, and I'm only going to evaluate them on their ability to quickly, efficiently, uh, and to the level that I want, perform task A. Uh, and then they ignore everything else. And so I always use this kind of humorous example uh, within my own team because it, it actually happened. And so this was maybe seven years ago. And we we have a robust internship program uh, that that we uh, that I'm a huge fan of, and uh, we've done it. This is our now tenth year, wow. and and we get about 800 applicants into every one intern that gets hired. And this cycle, we have 14 interns uh, that, that have come onto the team, and we, we use it as a big feeder for entry level positions. And, and so, but before we harmonized that program and standardized it, every phone screener uh, got to ask their own questions, and and. Uh, each intern comes in to do a specific project, and one of those projects was working on a specific lab equipment or a piece of lab equipment called HPLC, right, which is like a chemical analysis tool. And the question, the technical question that was asked in the interview was, I want you to walk me through how you would design the piece of equipment, right? And so this was a question asked to someone who was an intern whose job it was, was not to design the piece of equipment, but to come in and sit down and just perform assays on this. And so at the end, you have 800 candidates that are applying for this role and 95% of them get, get knocked out by this screening question. Uh, and we bring in three candidates, uh, none of whom have a great control over the English language or, or anything other than being able to know exactly how to build one of these machines from scratch. And <laughs> At the end of it, we ended up with an intern uh, who could do exactly one thing, which was not what we wanted. <laughs> and, and, and so it's it's kind of funny, right? Uh, right. But it, it's, and it's a very extreme example. Uh, but what I see is that like this happens in really small ways, and and it's it, like in in company lore, right? We use this example to train our new hiring managers to say that you want to set the questions and the rubric to be, you know, can you bring in, in every single role, a swing hitter? Uh, you want someone who is not only applicable for the role that you're bringing them in, but they should be able to, to be fluid in some way, right? To be able to fill the needs of the organization as the organization grows and develops, because in whether it's a 20-person organization, a 75-person organization, or a 300-person organization, as a startup, needs change every single day. And so th there's there's obviously a need to have specific roles and, and for employees to understand what the expectations are. Uh, but if you hire someone to do exactly something in a box, there odds are if you run the t if you run the clock forward six months, that box won't exist anymore. And, totally. and so then what do you do with that team or what do you do with those people? And and so you have to hire specifically uh, for employees that not only can perform the tasks, but can also have the soft skills to, to morph and to grow within the context of the organization. Uh, and, and so it, it, it's, it's tricky. And, and the average manager that, that I've had to coach through this, it's, it's not intuitive uh, to, to interview like this. And, and so it, it takes a lot of effort of everyone working together, because when you have, if you have 15 hiring managers, you have 15 different hiring and interviewing styles. Uh, and what you can't afford to have is 15 different teams all with unique cultures because everyone interviews differently. And, and so 
you have to spend time harmonizing that before it gets out of hand. Totally. I think that's so profound. And I think you, you're also kind of saying, you know, by default is that you also have to know what you're hiring for, which I think is also very challenging. It sounds like the most simple thing in the world, but you sort of think, oh, we need a little, you know, associate to do this thing, or we need even a backend developer, or we need, you know, a marketing person. Well, a marketing person, it's not one monolithic thing. You actually have to sort of get into the details of what you're hoping that person does because you're looking not to have the person to maybe build the pipeline. You need to have the person to do the, I don't know, product marketing or, or whatever it is. And if you don't go through the rigor of defining what it is you're looking for, I think you run into the same problems of asking the wrong questions and therefore getting the wrong person. Exactly. Yeah. So I appreciate, Joe, that you you know, learned by doing and learned by doing in terms of the hiring process. And you saw results <laughs> like the intern who could build the machine that you don't need because you already have that machine. What about, how did you learn to do other key management practices, essential management practices like delegation and giving direct feedback, maybe even how to, f- how to fire someone? How did you learn how to do those things as you were growing yeah. as a leader? So the thing is, like, I, I always describe myself as an INTJ leading E. Uh, and so I, I'm, I'm on this journey, uh, where I, I started life as a very strong I. I and introvert, introvert for those I, of you who I don't introvert. know that model. Yeah. And, and, and I'm becoming more extroverted over time. And what that meant is that the, like, my natural state, uh, if you'd met me before this, before this role was that I, I was never the person in the center of the action, right? Like I, I always like to sit back and collect my data and then interject only when, uh, only when I had a fully formed opinion and I was very quiet. And, uh, and, and so as a manager in the beginning, I, I was very trusting. And, and so I was talking about this as the pendulum of management, right? Which is that. You get two types of managers in the beginning, right? You, you get this very like Machiavellian manager, and then you get the Kumbaya manager on the other end, right? And so you get like the, the manager who wants to give orders and say, I, I need to know what you're doing every 15 minutes and uh, I'm going to micromanage you and I don't trust you at all and, uh, and whatever it is. And then you have the other manager that says, I trust you entirely because you work for me, you must be loyal to me. And so I'm just going to give you general directions. And I I trust that you'll get it done by time. And most managers start out on one end of that spectrum. And and they, you end up learning very quickly that your answer or your your way of management is wrong, right? (laughs) You can't be just like that, right? So if you're, if you're too much of a micromanager, people are going to push back on you, and you're not going to get the results that you want. And if you're too trusting, People are going to take advantage of that and, and you're not going to get the results that you want. And so what you end up doing is you see this sort of pendulum effect where you swing to the other side. So the trusty manager becomes a, a micromanager and a micromanager becomes trusting. Uh, and then, but not all the way. And every time you do that, you end up settling in the center. And so the, the way that I've described my own journey uh, is that you know, I started out being very trusting. Uh, I swung into micromanagement and, and then I, I find, I found a balance over time. And so I, I think a part of that, it has to be done through, uh, through trial and error, falling on your face, having things blow up on you. Uh, another part of that has to be done through having a good team of advisors. I mean, I, I'm unique in that I, like my, my first real work experience was as the founder CEO of this company. And so I didn't really have an opportunity to see this done elsewhere, except 
outside of the businesses that my my family had and, and those were by and large small businesses and, and so not uh the not exactly what we're, what we're building here right and, and so uh, for me i had to learn uh pretty much trial by fire uh, yeah when i'm looking at young managers that we're developing um what i like is the concept of sandboxing and, and what i mean by sandboxing is giving a young manager the opportunity in a risk-free or low-risk situation to try out conversations or techniques uh, to be able to fail safely uh, so they're not blowing something up, right? Like you, you don't want to, in my opinion, it would be a shame to allow a young manager to ruin someone's career trajectory uh, or have their experience here at Cresselon be negative because you're trying to get a young manager to learn on their own uh, without intervention, right? And so they're... Uh, th there are ways to mock up those conversations or help them wade into the water with small conversations uh, that allow them to build those chops and see what styles work for them uh, to be able to build a system of of of, of just memory and, mu and muscle memory responses, right? And and so uh, and we try to do that through everything, right? So management conversations is one thing. Uh, uh, on, on the other hand, right, you have even like professional, uh, like, like whether it's giving presentations to the board or interacting with third parties, it will, what we try to do is bring young talent in early uh, so they can shadow and they can see and they can get exposure uh, in situations where we're not putting massive pieces of P&L on the line because we, we took someone fresh out of school and had them run a contract negotiation or something like that. And, and so... Right. Uh, and, and, and so there, there's a safe way to do it. It's different for every business, it's different for every individual. Uh, but if for anyone who's listening who is a people manager looking to develop people managers that report to them, uh, trying to find that sandbox is critical uh, to, to development, in my opinion. I love it. I got so much out of what you just said. You talked about the pendulum swing and how you have to iterate between sort of dictator and trust kumbaya and sort of go back and forth on that and find your mm -hmm. space. And then also the notion of sandboxing. I love that. And also making sure that they get, I think, appropriate swings. And, and also the idea of shadowing, I want to just point out, mm -hmm. because I think that shadowing is a lost art. So the idea of having someone in the room while something's going on so they can be in the room and watch and listen and learn from that perspective. Mm -hmm. Those are great exactly. practices. I would just add, Joe, and I wonder what you think about this, the idea that different people actually need a different style of management. Like some people need, I won't say micromanager, but I will say they're less experienced. They need more specific, clear direction and guidance. And also the thing they're doing is high stakes. So they need that kind of super direction. And there are some people who are both experienced, but also they learn best by doing. So in a safe way, it is like, I trust you, go do it, is the right yeah. style for them. So it's both you as a manager learning, but it's also learning to deal with the person that's in front of you. Exactly true. And, and so it's just what I find, however, is that uh, the young manager uh, will try a one size fits all strategy first until they realize that it has to be, uh, it has to be a lot more nuanced. Uh, to yeah. That. I, but I, I agree entirely. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, Joe, you talked about your investors and the idea that you wanted to, you know, biotech takes a while and you wanted to vet them for people who were going to have the patience. I assume that you've had ups and downs in your business, uh, in your business. Can you share sort of like a down, a setback, a failure, a difficulty that happened inside your company and how you dealt with it and what you learned from it? 
Yeah, of course. I, I mean, so uh, unfortunately, I, I have no, uh, I have no lack of of downs <laughs> to talk about. Uh, you know, thirteen years is a long time to uh, to have down, and really, it's not about the fact that the down happened, right? It, it's the fact that we recovered from it, right? And I, I think that to any entrepreneur listening to this, uh, it, it's you know, there will be downs, and uh, I, I don't know if I, I told you this. Really. I read Shoe Dog by by Phil Knight, and uh, it, one of the most surprising things as a young founder to me, and this was before I had seen my first down. So this is while we were still on the on the upswing. Uh, was hearing the story about how he had to take out a second mortgage on his house ahead of his IPO just to pay payroll. Uh, and uh, the understanding that a company so successful right on the eve of their IPO could go through such difficulty uh, was uh, was scary to me <laughs> at the very least. I, I just, it didn't compute. Uh, but it's true, it happens all the time, right? And and the and in every success story, there's something where it cuts very close to the wire. And for us, I mean, I think the biggest difficulty that we had is that uh, we had to run a lot of our development out of order uh, with, with what things are typically done, right? So Crestlot is very unorthodox in a lot of ways. And the biggest um, unorthodoxy that we have is that uh, we had to build manufacturing before we launched our product because we, we couldn't find a partner to do it for us because it, it just it was physically impossible to do it. And what we excel at is doing the physically impossible. Doing the impossible. And, and so we, we had to invent this process. And so uh, that involved getting space in New York, investing a, a significant amount of capital to build that space out into manufacturing, get permits, get validations and make sure that this was up to the standards of the market. And so uh, what we, and so one of the most difficult challenges that I had to make was uh, we had all this media attention. We raised a bunch of capital uh, in 2013 through 2015. In 2015, we were ready to launch our product. Uh, and at the time we were using a third party lab, one of the one of the top labs in the country. And uh, we'd made nine batches and, uh, uh, for the sake of time, I'm not going to go too much into uh, into all of this, but it turns out that one of the critical tests for release, uh, which is a relatively simple test, which is, is the product sterile or not, uh, we had sent to this lab and they told us that everything was sterile. Uh, and we were able to prove pretty simply. So in fact, the guy was able to lick a syringe, close it up, send it to this testing center. And we were told that uh, that syringe that I had licked was sterile. And so it means... Uh, not, not that I have a very clean tongue, uh, but that uh, th th there was a problem with the assay. Right? And, and this is and this is a big challenge. I mean, the like, if you take it out, right? It's if you have something that's novel, you may not be able to use off-the-shelf service providers uh, in order to in order to mesh with that. And so it dawned on me on on the very eve of our launch that if I couldn't trust the top, one of the top labs in the country. Uh, to, to do this, we were putting everything at risk. We were putting patients at risk. We were putting ourselves at risk uh, and, and our partners and our investors at risk. Uh, and, and so if we wanted to do this the right way, we had to do it all ourselves. And so I pulled the plug at the last minute. Uh, and so we went back to our investors and we told them, listen, I'm sorry, uh, but we actually need 10 times the amount of capital we told you we need because we need to flesh out the team. We need to build in all of the capacity ourselves. And we did it. And, and so... Uh, that which we thought would be, uh, well, a little bit of money and about a year actually took from 2016 to 2020 to do uh, with the global pandemic in the middle. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And, and so 
during that time, it was very difficult uh, because we had uh, obviously proven that the product worked, but we had nothing commercial. And so it was four years of effectively month to month um, seeking bridge financing to, to get us to where we need to go. Uh, and and we got through it. Uh, we got through it primarily through uh, through grit and determination and a great group of investors that uh, did not turn their back on us uh, through that entire process. Uh, and we came out the other side a better business uh, and a better business that's able to truly scale and and, manufa and manufacture at the capacity and the level of quality that the market needs. And we're no longer beholden on third parties. We can do everything in-house. Uh, but what it meant was that we had to flip-flop the curve, right? We had to do everything in-house that you usually don't do until you've become profitable. Uh, we had to pay for up front. And, and so uh, it was it was not easy. Uh, it, you know, it was uh, you know, pushing the limits. And I, I, can, I can tell you now uh, exactly what time payroll leaves the account. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and things like that, uh, and, and so uh, and, and and so it, it makes me. Uh, there's some karma, I, I think, in uh, the younger me reading that passage in, in Phil Knight's book. Uh, but uh, it got us to the point where we, uh, you know, at, at the end of the day, you know, the, the startup roller coaster is is you know lots of ups and lots of downs, and and uh, you know, not a lot of people talk about the downs right it's easy to look at the success stories and it's sometimes just as it was shocking for me to see that nike had had bad times it's not always up and to the right and understanding that it's there and that you have to prioritize your own mental health uh you have to prioritize uh your team and making sure that everything is uh is continuing and, and again we've been very lucky we didn't None of these things included layoffs. Uh, none of these things included shutdowns or, or necessarily missed deadlines. Or, um, but it, it, it was taxing, uh, not I, nonetheless. And, I can and, imagine. And, and so, uh, but we we got through it, and 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 we're we're a better business for it. Was there ever a time where you thought you you weren't going to make it? Like during that four year period when it was month to month, and when there when you were like you know watching to see when payroll left and would the check clear? Was there ever a time where you thought, oh, I don't know if we're going to make this? Oh, all, all the time. Uh, I, I mean, it was. Uh, I mean, or or at least on on many uh, on many instances there. I mean, there was a time when I I had to pay payroll out of my own pocket uh, because the check didn't clear in time or something like that. And, and, and so it's, uh, like you do what you need to do to, to keep the lights on. And, and it just, uh, I mean, again, I recognize that not everyone has the support system that we have to, to fall back on, whether that means investors or, or anything else. But it, it, it's, uh, you know, we were really lucky to have built that support system. And, and, and this is, this is where we started this call by talking about relationship building. And, uh, this is where having those relationships really matter. Uh, and, and, and so it, it's, um, it, it's critical, uh, that when things start to deviate from plan, you can have realistic conversations and you can build trust. And, and nowadays, I mean, I, uh, I mean, at least you can, you can talk to my investors, but at least my feeling is that I, I have a, a much stronger feeling of trust, um, with our investors because they've seen that even as things were falling or down around us, we were able to put plans in place. We we're able to deliver to those plans more or less. So at least with the things that we had in our control. Uh, and, and it proved that even uh, in a down case, we were able to execute as a leadership team. And, and, and that 
uh, that builds trust when you fight in the trenches together. Yeah, totally. Wow. So one thing you talked about, I think is a very important topic, which is about how do you as a founder safeguard your own mental health? Were there times during that period that you felt like, oh, wow, I'm burning out or this is too much for me or I need support or how do you think about your mental health? How do you think about during the difficult times and how do you think about it overall and what are some practices you have to handle your own mental health? So it's difficult, right? Because it, it, it's, uh, I mean, the, the job of a founder is nonstop, uh, and, and it takes a toll on you. I mean, even, even in up case scenarios, I mean, right now we're in a period of rapid growth and I, uh, realized that I burnt myself out just because we were launching in so many places and doing so many things that I, I was on a plane and I, 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 we talked about it. I got married last October. And I, my first real weekend with my wife at home in New York was Memorial Day. And, and, and so it, it, it dawned on me that, you know, I, I have to, I have to prioritize my, my own health over, uh, most other things or, or any other thing. And, and so, uh, like I, I have a few techniques. I mean, the first thing is that I'm very lucky. My, my wife and I have been together for, for 12 years. And, and so she's, uh, uh she's, she's a great partner and having, a support system that isn't at work is critical. Uh, and, and also having a team. Uh, so one thing that I've noticed, and as a founder, I, if we had had this conversation eight years ago, I would have told you, or five years ago, even, they told you that the founder's job is to act as a filter, right? Uh, take all the noise from the world that's happening and filter it to the team so they can stay steady and do what they need to do. And to a certain extent, that's true. But if you're dealing with something, right, if you're fighting to keep the lights on every single day and you're not in the office and you're spending all of your time talking to investors, the team knows what's going on. And, and so if you're not acknowledging it, having open communication with your entire team is critical. Uh, and so because it means that they don't think that anything is being hidden from them, right? And so, uh, I mean, what, what's, and, and so the, communication and being open about what you're going through is helpful, right? I, I remember one of my one of my New Year's resolutions at some point in the middle of this process was just, I'm going to be honest with everyone I'm talking to, right? If, I, if I'm going through something, I'm just going to say it. And, and, and if they don't care, so be it. Um, yeah. I, I'm going to be I'm going to be open about it. And, and I, uh, I, I, I tend to like whatever it is that I'm dealing with, I, I, I just I just say it. Um, and, and it's helpful. Uh, also finding time for myself uh, to decompress. And so I, I walk to the office each way every day. And so I, I get, I get 10 miles in round trip. And, and, and that, that's my time to sort of set my thoughts up for the day and, uh, and ideally not break a sweat on the way into the office. Other day, like <laughs> I was going to say, or, when it's or, raining, or problematic, but. Uh, the wildfires, yeah. Uh, but giving yourself the time to do what you need to do to decompress is critical. I, I mean, like I'll give you another example. Like we were dealing with a major regulatory uh, milestone uh, for the last couple of weeks, and and so you know I made a policy with our uh, with the teams that were working on that, where I, I gave them I gave them a cash budget to just go and do whatever they find relaxing, whether that's a spa or, or a nice dinner with someone, uh, or just go take a weekend somewhere. Just go do it. Right. It, it expires. You just have to go find something relaxing, get, get your mind out of what it is that you're doing, because there's uh, there's this culture of burning the midnight oil and showing that you're dedicated by 
effectively burning yourself out performatively. Uh, and I, I don't subscribe to that myself, right? I, I mean, I, I tell my team, right, if they need me at three o'clock in the morning, they can call me. I, I'm almost always on, right? But uh, I make a point of leaving to go have dinner with my wife. And, and so it, and I, I expect that my team sets that on or my direct reports at least set that example for their teams uh, because it, it just otherwise like there there's there are enough problems in this world or, or, or in this business and, and you have to perform at your best in order to solve those problems uh, or at least the problems that are within your purview and if you're burnt out you can't do it and and so uh, it, it's just well maybe to recap on the rambling right it's finding time for yourself it's being open and honest and it's having the support system around you um, to do it uh, unfortunately mental health ha has a way of persisting and and and, and so uh th th those are uh, maybe treatments uh but not it, 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 nothing is a, is a one-size-fits-all solution necessarily right and it's never one and done Right. You've exactly. got to keep that practice up of making sure that you're getting time for yourself and finding your support system. I, mm -hmm. I think that's so powerful. And I guess I'm curious, you know, be it like if I think about kind of the mentors around you who have helped you the most, who would you say are some of the mentors that have given you the best advice or that you've been able to lean on the most during this period? So it, it 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 varies depending on the uh, depending on the challenges. I mean, again, I I lean very heavily on uh, on my own team, uh, both for personal and, and professional things. I I lean on I lean on my wife significantly. I, I lean on family, uh, and uh, so I mean my 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 parents have run businesses. My my grandparents, uh, while while they were still alive, ran businesses, and and, and so I. Uh, Leaned on them heavily uh, while uh, while they were still around, and then I have a group of advisors and mentors, uh, and including one that uh, has. So I've had breakfast with him every Wednesday morning uh, for the last thirteen years, uh, and, <laughs> wow. and it's, uh, it's been uninterrupted. And and he's now, I, I don't want to get his age wrong, but he, he's he's in his, he's in his late eighties. Uh, and, and he was the earliest or the first advisor that we had uh, assigned to us by NYU, and, and he, he stuck around. Uh, and so he's uh, he, he's been our rock uh, through uh, through the times. He's seen the he's seen the, the ups and the downs and everything in between. That's beautiful. That's amazing. Now, Joe, this is the question I ask a lot of founders, probably most of my founders on this show, but I'm particularly going to ask you because of your delicate age. When, when have you ever, or have you ever experienced severe self-doubt or imposter syndrome? Oh, all the time. I mean, still to this day. And, and so, uh, I, I mean, the funny, like, I, I think it's probably a clinical issue, but I, I tend to be sure of myself more often than not. And I think that's an affliction many founders also have that, that make you want to go out and, and run your own business. Uh, but the, the the times when I uh, so I I I love having a team I can trust, and so the most comforting thing that I have as a founder as a CEO is knowing that there are certain areas of this business where uh, I can trust my team innately to solve the challenges that that we're going to be faced with, and sometimes uh, there are certain issues uh, that can only be solved by me. Uh, and those are the things that scare the hell out of me, uh, because even though I'm sure of myself, 
uh, I, I used to say this. So in the situation where we needed bridge funding, right? I can, I'm very good at pulling rabbits out of hats, right? But uh, I don't know if there are, like, if I've pulled 20 rabbits out of a hat, maybe the hat only fits 20 rabbits, right? At, at, at some point, right, I'm going to reach into the hat and, and it's just going to be felt at the bottom of it. <laughs> and, and so and you can see all these analogies I, I've used exhaustively with my own team. Uh, but uh, <laughs> the point there, right, is like there's the, like, I, uh, like, where you, where I feel that most are the places where the buck stops only with me. Uh, and I, I don't think that goes away. I think that's healthy. Uh, in in a way, but it's realizing first and foremost that you need a team around you that you can trust. And, and so I uh, was dealing with the challenge very recently, and uh, it hit me that so the you know the oh shit email came in, and your blood pressure goes up, and you get that that, that the cortisol hit, and uh, you know my response to it was I'm not going to respond right now. I'm going to uh, I'm going to go take a walk. And, uh, and, and just think through things. And, uh, because uh, again, one of the best pieces of advice that I ever got was if you ever, ever have a hard decision to make, sleep on it. And if the option isn't there in the morning, it's not an option you wanted to take anyway. Uh, and so, and that's almost always true. And, and so, but by the time that I'd come back from my walk, my team had sent me a briefing and answered all the questions for me. And, and, wow. and so, and and it hit me uh, that my initial response as the CEO was that I had to solve this problem because it was big and it was existential and it needed to be solved. And then I realized that, in fact, this person was the this guy that's been around for 11 years, right? Uh, you know, he had already, uh, like, he took the brunt of it, right? And, and he controlled the situation. He broke the big problem down into small, solvable problems um, and put a plan in action and had already put at least the PNL and, and his organization uh, that, that he has control on or over in lockstep to solve the challenges. And it made me realize uh, in times like that, that that is the, that's the key in building a good team around you is realizing that in many, as many areas as possible, you can have that support. You can have that trust and you can have those people that watch your back. And, and so it, it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword. So I, I've been feeling it less, more uh more recently uh because uh we've done a really good we've put a lot of effort into empowering the team uh that that we have around us and that that's i haven't had that for the longest time even if the team was the same people it was yeah. uh, it took a long time uh to to get into the swing of that and 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 we're we're just starting to hit that stride now yeah that's amazing. So it sounds like, and I, I'd like to know what your advice to other founders is to also handle their own feelings of imposter syndrome, but it sounds like having the right team around you is one of the keys that really makes that work for you. In my opinion, yes. I mean, it's really about realizing that, A, that there's a reason why you're doing what you're doing, right? And so the, uh, and, and understanding that everyone feels imposter syndrome. And, and it's just, it, it's, you know, I feel it. My wife feels it. My team feels it. And if everyone feels it, it must be something that's normal. And, and, and so realizing that it's normal to feel like an imposter is, is the first step to resolving it. Uh, and, and I think the thing that shook me out of it is when you're used to being the one to solve all the problems, um, when you can find people to put around you that will help you solve those problems, 
um, and having the trust and the confidence in them to finally let go and delegate on those issues uh, is critical. And, and and so it's it starts to show you that you can do that. And and it, it's a process. You can't do that right away. And in fact, in the early stages, like there should be founder involvement in in most things. And uh, uh, but as you as the organization starts to get bigger, I say this all the time: I failed as a CEO if I if I haven't built an organization that I'm separable from. And and so uh, and and that, that's a hard process to go through, but. 13 years in, it needs to be, uh, it needs to be something that, that I'm thinking of is that I can't have teams that are entirely dependent on me to do their jobs. They, they have to be able to do something, uh, if I, you know, get hit by a bus tomorrow or something else like that. God right. forbid. <laughs> right. God forbid. Exactly. Well, that, I think that's so powerful. And then that's, I think, one of the ways that you've grown as a leader. How else have you grown as a leader as you've gone on this 13 year journey with Crestland? I, I mean, in, in ways that are far too numerous to count, I, I, I just, uh, I, and it's a journey, right? I, I mean, I, I'm growing every single day, right? And it's like one of the great things. I mean, again, the benefit of having 13 years of experience here is that sometimes you, you know, you end up hitting the wrong button or putting the wrong search term into Dropbox or SharePoint and you find a file that's five years old or something like that. And you realize I wrote that. We did this. I, like I proudly showed this to somebody. And, and, and so you see, you can see your personal growth so palpably. And, uh, and, and, and so it, it's in everything. I, I mean, for, for me, like I, I tend to, like I'm, I'm very New York. And, and so I tend to have a very strong temperament and, uh, and strong opinions on things. And I, I think that I, I've, I've mellowed out. I, I've, uh, I've gotten more in control of my own ego and, uh, I've, I've become more trusting of my team. I've become more able uh, to have the hard conversations. And I remember that as a young manager, it took a lot of activation energy for me to have the hard conversations. And 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 now I, I'm nearly completely comfortable in bringing things up, not in one big go with preparation, but as they come up. And and, and it helps my it helps my teams be uh, be better at, at what it is that they do. Uh, and, and so it's just, it's a lot of maturity that, that only comes from being in the trenches. So and, true. Uh, uh, yeah. And not sure if you could hear the Brooklyn in the background. So my, my apologies. There's like uh, <laughs> some, someone downstairs laying on the horn. So my apologies to that. That's okay. This is authentic Brooklyn. I love it. You know, but just to ask you a little bit more about that, when you talk about like leaning into the hard conversations, is that just muscle memory and practice? It, it just like, for me, it's not my natural state. Right. I, um, like for me, I have two modes or had two modes, which is argumentative, uh, or just completely okay with everything. And that's okay. in like, even in a restaurant setting, which is the simplest term, right? If my order comes out wrong, nine times out of 10, it's just, I'm not going to bother to like, if it's not a huge inconvenience to me, I'm not going to erase it. Uh, but if it becomes over whatever the threshold is, then I create an issue out of it and then it becomes, a, and I'm very opinionated about it. Right. And, and, um, and, and so that threshold tends to be high, right? But it, it's it, it's two modes, and, and that's not good from, from a management perspective. And so, uh, for me, I, I think that, and and I see this in young managers all the time too, is that they tend to instead of wanting to have negative conversations, uh, they save it all up for a performance review where they write it down perfectly, and then you have an employee who's being told by their manager 
you're doing a great job, you're doing a great job, you're doing a great job, and then the performance review comes around and they say, you know, thank you for everything you do. However, here are 12 pages of negative feedback that I've collected with a bunch of specifics. And then they get blindsided and it becomes a larger issue than it is because they, they feel like they're not being trusted. Uh, and, and so uh, I I hope I was never quite that bad uh, as that example. Uh, but I always had a tendency to lump the hard conversations together until they got over the threshold, uh, meaning that if I saw a lot of little things I didn't like, I wouldn't nitpick on the little things until it became large enough to discuss this one conversation, which is okay to a point, uh, but it's not a great management tactic. And, and so I've become a lot better at, at giving constant feedback, good and bad, to employees uh, and, and, and doing that more regularly rather than waiting for a, a big formal conversation. And, and it, it helps quite a bit. Right. That totally makes sense. And then also you're not just like saving everything up for this one conversation, mm -hmm. but then also to your point about good and bad, it's like, oh, I know where I stand. And also, you know, you're getting like just normal day-to-day -day feedback. This is working. This is working. This is not working. This is working. So it feels kind of like more naturally integrated into the day. Exactly. Yeah. I love that. Just two more questions, Joe. What do you wish you had known earlier on your journey? So, you know what? I... So, so I, I could tell you a bunch of regret. Like I could tell you a bunch of, uh, I mean, we obviously had to change our entire business model a couple of times. And, and I could say that I wish we had known to do this. But in fact, actually, there's technology we use today that wasn't invented until 2018. And so if I had tried to do this the way I'm doing it now, before 2018, I couldn't have. And so we kind of needed this time of doing it. And so, uh, I mean, really, I... Um, I needed the learning experience of falling on our faces and going through these trials and tribulations because I feel like if I had been in a, a strongly up into the right situation uh, this entire time, I, I wouldn't have built the character traits that I needed to do what I do today. And and, and so uh, I, it, it may be a bit of a cop out on this answer, but I really wouldn't change anything necessarily. And, and so I, I uh, you know, I'm not saying we didn't make any mistakes or that our mistakes weren't major, uh, but we learned from them and we became a better business because of it. And so I, I just, uh, I, I, I take it all good or bad. Beautiful. I totally hear you. And every sort of step and every moment led you to the next moment. And that's how it led you to today. Mm -hmm. that's, that's so great. Now, last question. What advice, Joe, do you have for other founders as they embark on their journeys to grow into leaders? So it's really understanding that it's a process and that it's not going to happen overnight. Uh, and that really everything we've spoken about over the course of this uh, discussion holds true. It's about building up a support system for yourself, uh, building yourself a group of advisors and building yourself a safe space, a sandbox so that you can trial this without putting your business on the line. Uh, and understanding that you're going to make mistakes and that when you do make those mistakes, the the important thing is not that you made the mistake or how you could have avoided the mistake, but more importantly, how you pick yourself back up afterwards. Uh, and, and really, you know, the, the thing that, in my opinion, differentiates a great business from, from an okay business is how they respond to those existential mistakes. Uh, and, and so, you know, if you roll over and say, oh, well, I, I, I guess we're done now. It, that that's not a, uh, 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 that's not what you want to be doing, right? It, it's about learning from the mistakes, changing, pivoting, and putting yourself on a trajectory to keep growing. And and so, uh, 
is just embracing the journey and reaching out to others for support because uh, it's what I find and it's the reason why I, well, I, I tend to share a lot of my opinions in, in as many ways as I can to as many people as I can uh, because I feel like there, there's this facade that happens with founders where founders want to pretend like everything is going well because they it, it's maybe a hallmark of the job, right? You, you need to convey confidence in what it is that you're doing. But the fact of the matter is that nobody knows what they're doing until you've done it a few times. And, and so uh, and, and so having that conversation, I've had so many founders that, you know, on, on first conversation, tell me, oh, I've got everything under control. Or if I offer help, they act offended and roll their eyes. And, and then, you know, if I say, well, hey, here's something I messed up. Uh, and then you get this deluge of, uh, you know, here's what I'm here's what I'm facing, and and, and so being more open uh, and and reaching out to support within your own network, um, whether it's you that need the support yourself or or it's others uh, that that could be supported by you, uh, it, it it's critical uh, because there's not enough of it, in my opinion. Totally agree. Wow, beautifully said, Joe. What can I tell you? Thank you so much for coming on the show and for sharing your wisdom and your opinions and all the things. <laughs> so valuable, so rich. People are going to really, really get a lot out of it. So I want to say thank you so much. Thank you. I, I appreciate it, and thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to From Startup to Grown Up. If you like what you heard, give it a review on Apple Podcasts so other people can find it. And if you know of a founder or someone else who is meant to be on this podcast, drop me a line through my website, alyssacone.com.